Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I welcome back Christopher Hopper, and we go through a range of topics, including the global economy and the impact that it's having on the Salesforce market, and whether there's a hesitancy for people moving roles or considering moving roles, whether or not contract is more risky than permanent employment in the current landscape, the current economy, and then covering a range of other topics, including references, certifications, and looking forward over the next three to six months. Always a pleasure to have Chris on the show. I always enjoy the chat and I hope you do too. If you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Chris, welcome back again. This must be what, third or fourth time? Yes, sir. Hey, Ben, great to see you again. Always a pleasure. It's always a good chat and I know people enjoy hearing your take and um, just, uh, I guess, getting a view on uh, what's happening over there and I guess comparing it to what's happening here. So what is happening in your world? How, uh, How have things been since we last had you on the show? They've been going pretty good, Ben. Um, you know, summer's kind of ending here in the U.S. now and, and fall's ticking in and, and, and school starting and fall festivities and football season and kind of tradition of the United States and, and fall starting. So yeah, summer's kind of over now. Decision makers are back in the office for the most part, or I won't say in the office, but they're working again. They're kind of done with their their summer vacations with the kids and taking extended vacations. It's a lot of times during the summer months, it can be a little challenging to get hiring managers availability or get the right people in place to be able to schedule the interviews with their HR or talent acquisition or the, the players that are involved in the decision-making process because of elongated timeframes to make decisions as well as being away from the office. But now that we're hitting the September month, things are starting to pick back up. You know, we'll hit probably a September, October, mid-November timeframe where we'll probably be busy for the next eight to 12 weeks, and then we start hitting the holidays back in the U.S., right? We've got Thanksgiving rolling around, and then Christmas and New Year's and whatnot. So these next 12 weeks or so will be pretty busy for us, and then we'll start to see another tell-off towards the end of the year, most likely. But yeah, ready to get back into the fall season and see what's ahead of us here as we start to continue to hit some uncertainty when it comes to the economy and some unknown scene right now as far as what's going to happen with inflation, the job market, and what the future holds for the rest of this year and into next year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely interesting times. Just on that topic of um, of like extended leave, you guys don't get much leave, right, in the US. When you say extended leave, like hiring managers, because what is it, two weeks or something you get as annual leave? Two weeks is the bare minimum, right? And that's usually where you're coming in at an entry-level position, right out of college maybe or something like that. As you get a little bit into your career, you're looking at, between three and five weeks, typically. Okay, so you negotiate it like it's not set in stone. Exactly. You know, 80 80 hours, two weeks is kind of, you know, especially in the IT space and and Salesforce, candidates tend to laugh at that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, newcomers may have to accept it because they're trying to just do whatever they can to get their foot in the door and accept a two-week PTO. But after you get a couple of years under your belt, you know, you're looking at probably a minimum of three weeks and then it just goes up from there. And then some companies allow you to roll over your PTO, right? So if you get three or four weeks, you don't use them all in a given year, you can carry a certain amount over to the next year, right? And they Mm -hmm. have caps on it. But let's say you get 
you know, four weeks, let's say you're a senior manager, for example, or someone that's been in the industry for 10 or 15 years, and you get four weeks of vacation, you only take two for whatever reason for the year, you roll over to the next year, and you're still accumulating. So the next summer, you might have four or five weeks accumulated. Now, it'd be tough to take all that time off at once. But if you take, you know, a week off in June, another week off in July, another week in August, that could be a good way to allocate or use that vacation time. And then maybe another two weeks during you know, the Thanksgiving and Christmas season as well. But yeah, baseline two weeks at a minimum at an entry level position. And then from there on up, you're, you're usually looking at three to five weeks typically. And do you hear of people going away for like lengthy periods? Because here, like in Australia, we have, so obviously Christmas, but then there's Australia Day on the 26th of January. And it, it feels like a lot of people expect nothing to happen during that time between Christmas and like that whole month of January can be a little bit slow. And people kind of, you know, a lot of people do take the whole of January off because they don't see anything kind of happening in that time in terms of, you know, job searches and, and things like that. Um, do you see uh, people take like extended chunks of leave or is it kind of one, two weeks at a time in most cases from a, uh, on average? Most cases it's going to be, yeah, one to two weeks. Um, week during Thanksgiving, most likely one to two weeks during Christmas and New Year's. By the time you hit your second week of January, you're starting to see people kind of get back into the swing of things. It takes a little bit of time to get acclimated again for being off so long. But no, we would never see, I won't say never, but typically don't see a month lag at any point in time. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the challenge a lot of times with recruiting is, you know, if there's three or four decision makers in a hiring process, getting them all together at one time or within a giving time frame, sometimes can be a challenge because one person might be off this week, someone else is off in the following week. So trying to schedule, you know, because typically we try to get the interviews done within a two-week time frame between candidate submission and getting an offer letter out to them. And during the summer months especially or during the holidays, that might get extended to three or four weeks based on people's availability. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And obviously, you mentioned the economy. And um, I think we kind of are led a little bit by what we're seeing happening in, in the US in terms of, you know, um, big tech companies laying people off. And, and we are seeing a little bit of that in Australia. I think, you know, typically, the first resources to go in a, a company tend to be the recruiters, right? And we've we've started seeing a bit of that more recently with some kind of startup companies or, or, you know, scale up companies. But in terms of the impact that you're seeing on the Salesforce market, are you um, are you seeing lots of people now kind of being laid off in the US, or is that more um, you know fear mongering and or other other roles that are going? Yeah, I'm seeing some Ben, not much as of yet. Right, I see a few trickle in every few days, reaching out to me, tell me about being laid off, looking for new opportunities. But it's not in the masses yet, and I'm hoping it won't get there. But I am seeing a little bit more than I've seen at any point earlier this year, right? And so I've been reading job reports and watching CNBC and talking about the economy and the way that uh, Jay Powell, the Fed chief here, is talking about he's got to make some drastic changes. And drastic changes doesn't just mean raising interest rates, but it's to also increase the unemployment rate. Right. Because right now, I think we're hovering around three percent, give or take. And for us to bring down to get inflation under control, to get the economy back under control, the report I read today was getting that up here to five or six percent. Right. Is where the unemployment rate should be, because things are still spinning somewhat out of control from a recession standpoint, from a job market standpoint, from an inflation perspective. And so. If what the analysts are saying are true, then we may start seeing additional layoffs 
happening just to help reduce the inflation and kind of the, the situation that we're currently in. But, you know, I'm no analyst, I'm no economist, uh, but I do try to follow what the folks that do this for a living are saying and some, some adjustments that are future looking as well. Yeah, I, I saw an article, I'm not sure who um, kind of presented this um, as information or, or uh, an interview, but someone from within Salesforce was saying that Salesforce is near as recession-proof as you can get. But I think that the reality is that, you know, every, everyone needs to look at their own situation in a silo, right, and understand that, you know, it's not so much the Salesforce ecosystem, it can be, you know, if you're if you're working in a Salesforce role in a financial services company and financial services take a hit, then your role might be more at risk than if you're working in a, you know, a government agency. Um, so I, I think there's no real blanket approach, right? You, I'm imagining you probably haven't seen like a trend in you know, specific job titles or specific industries for the people that are starting to be let go. Correct. So that's a good point. Like, so the financial industry, right? Let's say the housing sector, right? So the housing sector is slowing down. The interest rates are going up. Not many people, are, as many people are getting approved for loans, right? So the real estate industry is starting to take a little bit of a dip right now which then has a, a cascading effect to, you know, the, the banks, the loan agencies, the mortgage companies, the real estate agents, that industry as a whole, right? Construction, slowing down building, new homes, things like that, right? And so, yeah, as that tightens up as far as lending goes, then there's going to be some cost reduction measures taking in the financial sectors that could have a direct impact on Salesforce admins or folks that are running the Salesforce org for, for customers. Um, they may be doing some cost reduction measures as far as if we have three people right now that are admins, can we reduce that down to one? Do we really need a developer? Can we bring in a contractor, take on that developer full-time position? You know, do we have all these things we're looking for in 2023 as far as new innovations and new things we want to do on the platform? Should we put those on hold right now? So all those kind of things come into effect as well as, you know, I mean, private equity money too coming in, right? So venture capitalists and, and PE funds coming into some of these startups may be also starting to uh, tighten their, their purse string, so to speak. And so some of these smaller startups may not have the same backing that they've had in the past to be able to get these, um, you know, these, these big chunks of funding coming into them to be able to do mass hiring. Mm -hmm. Are you still seeing like some companies and, and um, like pushing for growth and, and talking about growth plans? Yeah, there is some, you know, small consulting companies that I'm partnering with that have growth plans that continue in this year. I think their clients still have a lot of movement. Maybe it could be the, the manufacturing or uh, other industries that they're supporting, retail potentially. I don't know what all industries they support, but there's some industries that they're supporting where they still need to hire people to be able to support those client limitations. So yeah, you know, there is still some hiring that's happening. You know, small consulting companies, some industries are still looking to me to, to help them out. You know, I had a good call today with a potential customer and his question was, Chris, I need you to help me put some bullet points together about how to justify the salary an admin warrants, mm -hmm. right? I was like, oh, that's because he has to then pitch that to his board of directors and his CIO and the decision makers. Because right now they're kind of having their sales ops team and some other folks there that are not Salesforce admins support their org. And he wants to bring in a dedicated Salesforce admin, but you know, his struggle or challenge is how to justify that salary. So those kind of conversations, are, I think, are happening, Ben, when things are getting a little bit more scrutinized when it comes to budgets and salaries. 
So I think that's kind of starting to have an effect on the economy as well. Had you seen salaries start to slow down over the last kind of couple of quarters or because I, I like I, I spoke to a, a product company um, that they're global and they have, um, you know, they were hiring for technical architects in Australia and, and the US and London and and they, they were quoted some ridiculous, um, like I think it was like 600 grand or something they were, they were quoted by a technical architect they wanted in the US. It was just like insane. They're, they're wanting to pay someone that, or that's what the TA No, was no, that's for. what someone asked for. I do get those, not 600,000, but I do get some, what I'm considered above market salary requests from candidates. Unfortunately, the clients that I'm supporting are not, they don't have the luxury to be able to pay those type of salaries, right? So they're still staying within market, right? So TAs, 200-ish. 210, 215. Some of them are wanting 250, 300. And I'm just telling these TAs that, sorry, this isn't the right. I don't have the opportunity to be able to support that salary. I go back to the client most of the time and say, hey, I found someone that's qualified for the position, but they're looking for this amount. Is that something you guys can work with? And nine times or 10 times out of 10, they say, you know, Chris, no, we're not, we're not at that level. So we're going to pass on that particular person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think we've kind of seen salaries plateau a little bit here. Like, you know, they, they probably got at the kind of peak of COVID, they, you know, where resources were so scarce and, and everyone was hiring, they kind of got to a, a certain level. And I, I think it depends on the person. And like, there, there's the odd candidate that's, you know, will get way above market for whatever reason. But, you know, like technical architect salaries have kind of capped out a little bit. And there are still people that are maybe earning under market and, you know, they're getting big pay rises to move, but we're not seeing the goalposts be moved significantly anymore. I think they've, we've kind of got to a, a point where, They've hit the limit for a while and maybe they'll go up again over time. I'm sure they will. But it's interesting to know, has that kind of been the case? Like have the salaries kind of stabilized and have they been kind of consistent for the last year or two now? I've seen it that way. You know, I've, I've kind of seen salaries and hourly bill rates plateau, right? Or kind of hit a ceiling right now. Like I said, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. But, you know, I still get one-off requests here and there for someone. And, you know, here's what you have to think about, Ben, is a lot of these candidates are actively employed, Right. So you're actually employed and maybe you're right at market. And so you're going to put yourself out there to see if someone will bite and be able to pay you 10, 15, 20% more than you're currently making. And sometimes those are the conversations I have, right? So I find a technical architect or an SA that's probably right where they need to be, but they're seeing what they could fish for in order to see what's out there for a potential pay raise. And maybe someone will bite. Unfortunately, I haven't had those customers that are just opening up their their budgets to support that type of situation. What do you think drives that? Like I, I have these discussions sometimes with people that, you know, they might want to leave their current role, but they might have some options that haven't vested in in the role that they're in. And they'll say to me, look, you know, I want to leave. I'm looking for, you know, my, my salary now is 160, but, you know, I need to get 220 to leave because, you know, I'm leaving these unvested options. And I'm like, well, that, that, you know, that isn't the, the new employer's problem, right? You, like they're not going to pay you above your skill set or what the market is for that rate just because you've made the decision to leave behind options that have invested. But for someone to turn around and look for like an, a, a salary that's absolutely, um, you know, way, way over market, right? Like someone looking at that kind of 600. Do you think they're probably working for a big tech company where they've got lots of shares and, and options and that they're kind of trying to put a package together that's going to offset what they're leaving? For sure. Right. And so, you know, if they say, well, I'm looking for 600 and then the question would be, well, what does that include? Is that just your, your base salary? Is that your vested options? What all does that makes up that number? Right. 
if it's 600 base, I'm sorry, I, you know, I don't have that type of position to support. You know, even 600 all in, I don't have a position that I've got to support. But you know, if we're if we're back into the to the thing, to your point, as far as you know, what does the stock options package look like? You know, those Salesforce, for example, right? We get occasionally people from Salesforce looking to make a move, but they're well taken care of, right? As far as their stock options vesting over time, right? And so. Yeah, it's almost impossible to take someone out of Salesforce these days. Like it's so hard because they they just get so well looked after and and the the package is so good. Yeah, they have the golden handcuffs on, so to speak, right? As far as our vested options, and so the clients that I work with usually can't compete with that. Now, once in a while, I'll have somebody who has a bonus coming to them, right? So let's say they have a bonus towards the end of the year that they're expecting ten, fifteen thousand, whatever it is. There's a little bit more leniency for a potential client to be able to support that as a sign-on bonus to make up for the money they're leaving on the table in that situation. That's about as far as it goes, as far as flexibility, Mm -hmm. right? But with sign-on bonuses, do you see that? Is that typically consulting firms are willing to pay sign-on bonuses rather than like an end customer? Most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time that sign-on bonus uh, is coming from a consulting company versus an end customer, yes. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing hesitancy to move now? Like, well, you you might have an amazing job. You take it out to the market and speak to candidates, and you know they might love the idea of the role, but they're just like, oh, you know, it's just a risky time to leave. I'm established in this company. You know, I've been here for five years. Uh, why would I leave and join a new company with the economy the way it is? I haven't run into that yet, Ben. I haven't run into. And keep in mind, usually the recruiting that I do is outbound for people that are usually looking or at least wanting to have a conversation about the market and what I have to offer. And so I don't really reach out to those who haven't already expressed some interest. This is the way that I recruit, right? And so I'm not really trying to pull somebody because I think that's a harder conversation to have. And our recruiters do a better job than I do at that as far as trying to move somebody who isn't really looking to make a move. Most of the conversations I have, I know this individual is open to evaluating that risk of making a move, going somewhere else. And so I don't really get that much pushback for those that I that I speak with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think here in our market, it's so small that, you know, pretty much everyone that I'm chasing is pretty much happy in their job or, you know, like I, I'm tapping a lot of people on the shoulder and then there's a, a bigger risk in that they they eventually won't move, right? Because they might go through the whole process and then decide, actually, I'm just going to stay where I am, or they get a counter offer and they stay. So I think there's different benefits to each side, I guess. Um, but yeah, most of the candidates we would be working with at any one time probably haven't applied for a role on our website or you know, aren't actively looking for a job, which does definitely give you um, a bit more of a headache at the end of the process. Right, for sure it does. One question that came to mind, Ben, do you ever feel like clients reach out to you and have you sign uh, an agreement so you won't take their talent from them? Oh, 100%. It's happened before. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've had people like call me and complain about me, you know, taking talent out of their team and be, and like, I think it's, that's just the reality of how recruitment works, right? Like, I haven't forced anyone ever to move jobs. I've, I've just taken opportunities to them that perhaps were better than the, the opportunity they, they were being given. But yeah, like, I feel that that, that happens quite regularly. And actually, like, I, I did a lot of work with one company based off the back of me taking out one of their technical architects. You know, I tried and tried and tried to work with them for a long time. And um, this was going back like maybe four or five years now. But um, I was at Dreamforce and um, got an offer for one of their technical architects. And the, the founder of the company was at Dreamforce as well. 
And I, I was at, at one of the sessions and I said to him, oh, like, you know, the guy that just resigned, I work with him, you know, I've been trying to work with you for a long time. And he then sent an email to his recruitment team saying, look, we need to like tee up some terms with Ben because, you know, he's started taking some of our staff. It would be good to work with him. And then I ended up doing quite a lot of work with them, like placed a CTA there in the end. So I think um, it happens for sure. Like people don't want their staff being, but there's always going to be another recruiter trying to take their staff. That's the thing, you know, like you, and it's not like, I, I don't want to frame it like that because it's not the recruiter trying to take their staff it's the recruiter trying to place roles for another company and ultimately like that's just how the market works right people leave you replace them they leave you replace them again like it's just and unless you have an amazing culture and you can offer amazing terms and and brilliant projects you are at risk of losing staff at some point whether it's for a recruiter or not no, I was just thinking about that because your market's a little bit smaller than, than mine, but occasionally I have customers that want to sign a, an agreement with me and then they never really give me the, <laughs> the role to recruit yeah. for. I'm like, did you just do this? I won't take any of your people. Yeah. I mean, is the, do you sign terms where it's like for a period of time or do you, like, does it restrict you from the moment you sign that you can't? It's a, it's a one year agreement, right? That I, that, you know, and it's mutually binding that, you know, that I won't, because I have a guarantee as well. So we have to also upheld that as far as 90 days for someone we place. Um, they have to stay there with the company within 90 days. And it's when I lose somebody after before 90 days, man, it, it stings because it usually isn't easy to find somebody to fill the role. And then for whatever reason doesn't work out. And then I'm on the hook to, to backfill. Yeah, yeah, backfills are the worst um, because, you know, unless if, if it's just not the right fit, like I completely understand that. But if there's another reason, like as in, um, you know, like someone just gets a better offer, like more money and, and you know, the worst one is like when they resign, you've got 90 days, when they resign after 89 days or they let go after 89 days, it's like an absolute killer, right? Yeah, the other situation that I ran into is they took the position that I had to offer them, but previously interviewed with another company that stalled on them and then came back around after they started the new position, offered them the original position that they interviewed for, this individual jumped ship and went back to the other offer. Yeah. So I, I had a, a situation recently and I was going to ask you about references, but I had a candidate went through three interviews with a client of mine. They they weren't looking for work per se. They, they just got back from holiday. They weren't necessarily looking, but I sent them a job description. They were like, actually, you know, this looks really interesting. So I'm going to, I'll go through the process, did the third interview, nailed it, really liked the company. They pulled out of another process of that. They started, they got approached by another recruiter. They, they said, I'm not interested in that role. I'm going to focus on this one. Gave me the two references. I did the reference, the, the first reference, um, one of their previous hiring managers, and then um, they completed the reference, but then contacted the candidate and said, look, oh, I didn't know you were looking for work, basically. Why don't you come and work at this company I work for now? So um, the candidate was then like, oh, look, out of respect for this person, I still prefer your role, but out of respect for this person in my career, I'm going to at least entertain it. And then ended up taking the other role with their old hiring manager. And, and it was just, uh, it stopped, had they not been a reference, then they would never have known that candidate was looking for work. So what's your take on references? Like, Do you value references? Do you think they still play an important part in the interview process? Some, I mean, occasionally, Ben. There, there is no hard and fast rule. Sometimes we have clients that don't even ask us to do a reference check. Sometimes we have clients that do. So it's, it's hit and miss, right, with that. Believe it or not, I am a little suspectful about who I'm calling to because I've had some fraudulent references as well, right? And so giving me names and emails and phone numbers that I can't find on LinkedIn. So I don't know if it's, it's their brother that I'm talking to or who I'm actually speaking with from a reference check perspective. So 
sometimes they get a little leery about uh, the, re- the the validity of the reference as well. Yeah, 100%. And like, I, I've never taken a bad reference. Oh, that's a lie. I've taken like a couple of bad references in, in 15 years or 14 years of recruitment. Like I, I genuinely have taken like only a couple of bad references when there are like a, a candidate provided referee. The difference I think is when, you know, you might come across someone that has worked with that candidate before that you know, and you might have a conversation and say, oh, like, oh, I've been working with Chris. You worked with him at X. How did you find him? And the conversation would be completely different to if that person was a reference, you know, like you get a very honest answer in that sense. I think there's there's value in those kind of conversations if you're a hiring manager and you might know someone in your network that knows someone that you've you know you're considering for a role there's definitely value in those kind of off the record references but like a formal reference check I don't think they're they're necessarily as valuable as as some people think because like you said you just don't know who's on the other end of the phone or um or if if it was the reporting manager or or if they're giving a, a really truthful reference. And I do look at LinkedIn recommendations, you know, I, I do because I try to find as much information as I can about the candidate and the qualifications and their work history. And so LinkedIn recommendations, like they're all going to be positive. I, I get that. But I also like to research the person that's given the LinkedIn recommendation, see what their position was at the time or what the position is now. and just trying to build a little bit of a picture around the candidate based on that. Yeah, definitely. And you've been a contractor before yourself. Um, I know a lot of people like they position our oh, contract is more risky than permanent, you know, it, like it's um, there's less stability with contract. Do you think that's valid? Uh, like in this current climate and, and, you know, the way the market looks in terms of forward looking and, and looking at the global economy and, you know, um, higher unemployment rates and things like that. Do, do you think it's riskier to be a contractor now than to be a permanent employee? I don't think so, Ben. I mean, to me, some companies decide to lay off full-time employees and hire contractors because it's a little bit less of a load, right? So from an employee load perspective, there's no vacation, there's no benefits being offered, it's just straight hired gun, right? And they can throttle those contractors up and down as needed, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, unfortunately, it's a two-way street. Contractor can quit at any time and a and an employer can tip in some states, not all states, an employer can lay off a contractor at any time. And so I've had situations where a contractor wasn't given any notice. They told me to, Chris, Friday's this last day for the contractor. Don't tell them until they sign off for the day on Friday, which is, you know, I mean, I don't know what to do about them. I, mean, I have to just kind of do what the employee says and the employer says to do. It's kind of dirty business, in, in, in my opinion, to do that to somebody. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, though, Ben, I, I don't think there's any and people have said this on LinkedIn that, you know, whether you're an employer or a contractor, you really don't have any additional level of certainty in a position regardless of the, the you know, the, the type of employee that you are or the contractor that you are there. Um, I think it just depends. Sometimes employers give a little bit more gracefulness and give them a longer runway to lay off an employee versus terminating them on the day of. But sometimes you read about stories on LinkedIn where, you know, these massive Zoom calls when it's saying, hey, everybody, today's your last day. And these are all full time employees. So I think the, you know, the knife cuts both ways in this case. I remember um, when I was in London, um, working three or four years in, in London, and I, I was actually supporting one of my colleagues, but we got a call from a client to say, like, can you come down to the office and take a contractor for a coffee? And then while you're there, tell him that 
he's not allowed back in the office and uh, and during that time we'll like turn his um his pass off so he can't get back in the office and um i was like 18 19 this guy was like a career contractor big burly guy and we had to tell him and he he stood back up and just walked straight back into the office and was, <laughs> there was nothing we could do about it. he was going back in there to have words with the client but yeah like i think if you're a contractor you kind of you know there is often a third party who are then left to to deal with that bad news and to give you that whereas you you kind of do like you said you get a bit more grace as a permanent employee you you would have the, the HR department. and But like you said, you hear of these Zoom calls where you know the whole team are laid off. And I think it, historically people would have said a permanent role was safer. But but now the reality is like, you know, if you were in a, an industry that was affected by COVID, like the travel industry, it didn't matter if you were a contractor or a permanent member of staff, like you were unfortunately in a, a difficult position. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes people think that our job might be easy on the perm side, but a lot of us also do contract staff and services. And when we bring on a contractor, they're really an employee of the agency, right? So for your agency, for my agency, they're an employee of ours. So the client has us do, quote unquote, dirty work when it comes to termination, right? And the client can position it any way they want because it's really no skin off their back of how it's presented, you know, and they turn to us to say, hey, Chris, here's the situation. Handle it like this, or you figure out how to handle it. I don't want this person back in the office tomorrow. You know, and those are sometimes cause some friction for us. You know, I had <laughs> one contractor who started, he left a full-time position to go to this contract role. He started, and within three days, I had to cut him loose because he was on his phone the whole time, or he was, you know, playing games on his phone or not being engaged in meetings. And so he started on Monday. On Wednesday, I had to terminate him after that he clocked out for the day. And, you know, you can imagine what kind of conversation he came at me with. Um, draw some, you know, threw some F-bombs at me and, and blamed me for the situation, which I just kind of had to explain to him what the client was feeling and why they decided to do this. So, yeah, it, we definitely get some stress and anxiety brought on to us whenever it comes to terminating contractors. Yeah, yeah, it's never a nice discussion. I, I think, um, especially like even giving bad feedback to a contractor if they're not being terminated because you don't see the work, right? You, it's third hand. So um, I had someone that they actually completed the six month contract, and the feedback I was given by HR was really bad. And um, I said, like, I'm, can I pass this feedback on to the the candidate? Because, you know, it's really important that she learns from it. And the HR team were like, no, please don't give her that feedback. Like, we don't want her to have that feedback. So then I spoke to the hiring manager and the hiring manager gave really good feedback. And it was like a, it was someone else in the team that had provided the negative feedback who wasn't like a, a line manager. And, and yeah, like it was really difficult because I wasn't able to give the bad feedback or the good feedback because I didn't really know, you know, what was the feedback, right? Like one set of, of people are telling me this, the other set are telling me that, like, how can I then leave a positive experience for the candidate or or give them some learnings or some lessons from that experience because I've got no idea what actually happened? Right. Same thing with the interview process, right? I mean, we, we talk to stellar candidates and they're all stars with us on the phone when we're screening them and they end up talking to the hiring manager or HR and it completely falls apart. And I'm like, is that the same individual that we just had a great conversation with and they didn't have a good conversation with you. And, and sometimes I think HR has to be a little bit leery about what how they communicate the feedback to us so they don't get put into lawsuits or HR concerns yeah. or whatever the case may be. And so we have to kind of tap dance it around that because they say, Chris, here's 
here's the truth of the matter as far as why this didn't work out, but I need you to figure out how to wordsmith it correctly so, you know, you, you can tap dance on it so you can be delicate about the feedback back to the candidate. The problem is with you in, in your market, you actually don't know if it was the same candidate that's turned up for the interview, right? <laughs> that, that happens a lot of times as well. I mean, we'll do we'll do videos and we'll take, you know, we'll we'll have an ID with a candidate. Usually it's on the contract side more than the perm side, Ben. But yeah, when it comes to contract labor uh, in the Salesforce market, who we talk to and who the client talks to can often be two different individuals, which yeah. sucks. Even the person that shows up, if they get hired, could be someone else. Well, we're seeing a bit of that here. Not not so much like um, you know someone taking an interview for someone else, but um, I had an example the other day. I got a CV, looked great, and I um, I the, the person was saying that they'd been working through a consulting company that I'd never heard of, but working for a customer of mine. So I I called the customer. I didn't say anything about the candidate. I just said, look, have you ever heard of this consulting company? Because I, I I've got a CV of a candidate that says they worked for your project, but via this, and the the manager like, nope, never heard of them. And I've been in that situation, a client of mine for many years, found a contractor resume, said she worked at this particular client. I asked the hiring manager, have you heard of this individual? No, nope, Chris, never, never seen this resume, never heard of this individual. She doesn't even have the state of technologies that we run here on the resume. So the whole thing was, was fraud. Yeah. And the other thing I'm finding now when I speak to someone that I, I'm kind of a little bit hesitant, like are they telling me the truth, you know, like what? I find that people can say what they did or, or what they worked with. So like, like you'll say, oh, oh, you worked at Coca-Cola. So what, what Salesforce products were you using there? And everyone can say, oh, sales, service, experience cloud. But then as soon as you start like, oh, how did you use experience cloud? Like how did Coca-Cola use experience cloud? They just go to uh, like they, they fumble, you know, they can't articulate how how yeah. that product was used in that organization. And that's really the way that I trip people up now. It's like getting them to, to put that product into a business sense of like, this is how the business got value from this particular product. People can't answer that if they're lying. Exactly. You just start drilling in, right? And one question leads to another question that leads to another question. And eventually you'll start to see just the card start to fall apart in front of you. Yeah. So um, in terms of uh, certifications, because like we, we're seeing a lot of candidates with certs, we always have, you know, people have, Lots of them now, and even some of these candidates that I mentioned that, you know, I, I can pick holes in their story and they have certs, right? They've got a handful of certs and, um, and kind of hide behind those certs as, as to show mm -hmm. that, oh, well, I, you know, I'm certified. I can do this job. Um, you know, there, there's now like the business analyst, uh, um, as well, which is kind of ripped through LinkedIn. Everyone seems to have got that on the same day. I think, uh, everyone kind of went wild for it. How much attention are you paying certs at the moment? Not much anymore, Ben, unfortunately being in the industry for as long as I have, they don't hold as much value as maybe they should or that they, they do or they're perceived to have. It's funny because I, I was thinking about this the other day because sometimes I get customers that have, I, I'll submit somebody, you know, six years experience, no certs. Hey, Chris, this person isn't certified. I'm not interested. Then I find someone with six certifications and no experience. Hey, Chris, this person doesn't have their hands on experience. I'm not interested. So yeah, they caught in the crosshairs there. But, you know, during the conversation I have with candidates, if they don't have certifications, I might ask them about, you know, or they might have one or two. I was like, do you have any goals or aspirations to get any more? And sometimes they say, no, Chris, you know, I'm, I'm happy with what I have. It's more about just being inquisitive with the candidate and, and trying to form some deeper conversation about their their plans for it more than anything else. Those are the kind of conversations I have around certifications. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, well, you know, it's not a, to 
try to crucify them or, or come at them in a, in a certain way as far as asking about the search or why they have so many search but no experience. So I just kind of take it as it rolls based on each candid conversation that I have, to be honest with you, Ben. And, the, you know, in the social feed on LinkedIn, you know, I see it every day and it's, you know, it is what it is. And people want to get the accolades for passing certifications and to each its own. And I just have to kind of roll with it because that's what Salesforce has, has put out there for it to be kind of an industry in its own, in my opinion. Yeah, I saw some, um, I can't remember who it was, um, a chap out of the US who posts a lot of, of interesting uh, I agree with a lot of what he says on on LinkedIn. He was saying, "Did we really need a BA certification for Salesforce? Like, there's there's other non Salesforce related BA search. You know, why did we need that? And it is interesting. Like, I feel like there's so many now. It's um, and I, I think you know, I, I've never done the BA cert. I'm not a BA, and and I've never been a BA on a Salesforce project. So there'll there'll be lots of people that listen to this that say, actually, we did need it, and this is why. But it's just interesting. It, there's no way of keeping track now of of a candidate certifications in terms of like. I removed the fields on my Salesforce org where I used to try and keep on top of which certs people had because, you know, there's just too many. Now, if I spent that long filling in those uh, multi-select pick lists for, um, for I'd be there all day for every candidate I speak to. It's it's just crazy. So, And I, I don't really ever get any clients that specifically ask for... I, I get some consulting firms that want, I think they call them the, the big five, like admin, sales, service, um, communities, and... Um, Maybe advanced admin, I think. Yeah, admin, yeah. So, so people maybe look for people that have those, or they might, you know, offer a salary that, that goes up when they get all five. But it's rare for for a client to come to me and say, right, we want a BA, and they need to have the BA certification, or you know, like we're we're looking for someone that has got the CPQ cert, um, because really they do look for the experience over the certification. Um, but but again, I, I always encourage people to get them because I think it's just expected of you to have at least one, you know, one or two certs. And and anyone that's looking to break into the ecosystem, you know, it's a it's a way of kind of um, showing you know an interest in learning and and the the fact that you can study and and commit some time to to doing it. But having the certs still won't get you a job. I think that's kind of been something that's been consistent through our conversations over the years. For sure, you know, and then the BA cert was something interesting that happened as. It looked like too many people were getting certified, so Salesforce had to raise the bar as far as what the criteria was and the passing score was on the BA search. So I thought that was an interesting situation that occurred. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd have done it. Maybe I'd have passed uh, initially. <laughs> Not anymore. Well, you know, and it just and then we also have the FOMO, right? So if people in your company are getting the BA cert, or people in your network are getting a cert. I can't have them one up me, and so I need to get it as well. And so we we kind of see that type of situation tends to happen as well. Unfortunately, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. For me, if I want to get a cert, it's going to be directly driven towards what I'm currently doing because I think it's going to be an easier way to, to pass that cert. Because mm-hmm. you know, it's just like trailheads. If I do twenty trailheads last week. The chances of me knowing much about what I did with those trailheads this week and not because I haven't done it since then are very small. Like I can go back and kind of reference it in, in the future because I've, it's still, I guess, in the back of my memory. But, um, you know, as far as remembering all the intricacies about what that particular badge had or even what these certifications had, I don't know. For me personally, my retention as I get older is, is diminished. Yeah. 
Yeah, me too. And I think um, like they've changed. I know they've recently changed the trailhead, like ranger stages or something. So you've got like you know you're not just a ranger now. You're a ranger. And I don't know enough about this. I think it's only just come out this week. But you have tierings within rangers. So people that have every badge are top tier, and then you know from there it goes down. I think um, again, like for for in terms of like credentials of of securing a job, having ranger status or being top tier ranger status in my view, has never secured anyone that I've worked with a job unless they're a junior person that, you know, that's all they, they can really show and, and that shows the enthusiasm and hunger to, to do that. But for an experienced person, I don't think uh, having a certain status will get you a job. But I do I do see value in the super badges and, you know, the hands-on challenges as long as you're doing them and, you know, you're learning something from them, then, then I definitely think they're valuable and um, it's just a good way to, like, explore and, and pick up a new area that, you know, you, you might just be about to work on and give you some confidence that you can do that before you go on a client site or or throw yourself into a live project? Yeah, for sure. I think if there's a goal in mind or a means to an end, it makes sense. The one thing I thought about though, Ben, is when I was consulting and in delivery, working 10, 11 hours a day, the last thing I want to do is study for a certification or do trailhead badges or do it. So I'm, I continue to be a little perplexed about people that are, are working and either have families or hobbies or something else going on in their life. And that's just me personally, you know, when do you find time to do this? I just don't, I don't understand. Cause maybe I just, my way of thinking and the way that I was in my professional consulting realm over the years, the last thing I ever thought about wanting to do was learn more stuff that I didn't, I didn't feel like I didn't care to learn. I'd rather go to the bar and Drink some beer instead. <laughs> Again, that's just how when I see people that are working full time uh, in a consulting company, like some of these big top tier consulting companies, either they're on the bench, which I guess I can respect, they're on the bench for weeks at a time, not looking, not doing anything else with their time to get certified or get some additional badges or whatever it makes sense. But if you're actually deployed on a client site, like I, any spare time that I had, I was trying to solve problems or be a, a valuable asset to the projects I was working on versus doing some self-study training. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had a conversation with someone recently and I said like, you know, in the Salesforce world, it, it appears to me that people are a lot more passionate than than the most careers or most technologies or jobs. So people kind of just enjoy it more than than if they were working with Siebel like you, you did perhaps. Yeah. Or, and, and then they really throw themselves into you know, just learning as much as possible. And, and because it becomes this passion for them, it's not that they, they maybe don't see it like work. You know, it's like it's it's their hobby. It becomes their hobby getting trailhead badges or or staying on top of the technology. And so maybe that's that's it. Sure. But, um, sure. And it could be and it could be a generational thing, Ben. I, I don't know. I mean, I just it's just a different career perspective that I just don't have any experience with, I guess. It was a little bit harder for me to relate to because it was either now it's family, before that it was social life or it was playing sports or being in the gym or running marathon. Whatever the case might be, I just had a lot of other things happening around my world that allowed me to decompress outside of being so <laughs> educated, more or less. Which I think is actually a really important point as well. Like I think as long as people are doing it in in balance, right, and finding time to decompress because projects are still stressful. You know, nothing's changed in that sense since you were doing projects. Like they're still stressful. They still take up a lot of time. And and I think it's important to have that balance and find time to to do things outside of that. 
Just before we uh, we sign off, what do you kind of suspect, or, or you know, looking into your crystal ball, how would you see the next kind of three to six months playing out from from a Salesforce market perspective? I think it's going to slow down some, Ben. To be honest with you, I think based on what I'm hearing and reading from the analysts, there's going to be some slowdown, and I think it's two things are going to happen. I think it's going to be some more layoffs, most likely. I'm not saying in mass. I think still, I feel like Salesforce careers are still one of the more stable positions and careers to have out there, but I think we're going to see more layoffs happening. And I, I think the duration to make a decision for a customer to, to make a hiring decision, it may be elongated as well. So, you know, one thing we saw in the Salesforce quarter report is that they're starting to see elongated timeframes for customers to make decisions to buy additional Salesforce products, right? More people are getting involved. They're sitting on the decision-making process a little bit longer things of that nature, I feel like that is also going to come in play as well. And kind of I'm starting to see that a little bit for some customers that they're taking a little bit longer to make a decision because they aren't sure what the next two to three or even six months holds for them. So they're a little gun shy about making a decision and making sure they have what they need in order to do so. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of my take on the next three to six months. And so for those that are listening, as far as, you know, still, if you're experienced higher, I think you're going to still be in good shape to be able to find something else. Just make sure you do your proper research on those companies you're interviewing with. Maybe if you can find out their financial situation would be good. Maybe talking to some additional folks that are in the organization to hear about what they're seeing or hearing about as far as their future roadmap and new projects and financial conditions. Um, I think that'd be a smart thing for you to do. For the newcomers, you know, as we've talked about in the past, that will continue to be a struggle no matter at what point of the situation we're in from an economical standpoint. Keep doing what you're doing, still doing your reach out, still doing your, your volunteer work, still trying to get educated. You know, I think just doing what you've been doing over the last 6, 12, 18 months to get your foot in the door, you got to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And the question everyone wants to know is when, when are we going to see some more sketches on LinkedIn? It's a good question. You know, I was, um, I thought about getting back into the, in the swing of things. A few people have asked me about that. I don't know. I just need to get back. I need to find some time to, to be able to get back into it again. I've been doing a little bit of apex training. I've been playing my guitar some. I've been practicing basketball. So I just had other personal things come into my world here recently. But since you've asked some others, maybe it's something I need to start chipping away again. And if the market does dip, and uh, you could always start minting them as NFTs, right? And uh, sure, and selling some of the past ones. That's uh, yeah, I could definitely step in that market and see what happens. <laughs> I'm not not getting my hopes high on that though, for sure. Well, uh, always a pleasure, mate. Really good to catch up, and I think let's let's tie in another chat in three or six months and see um, see what's happening. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform, as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.